Schumacher hits David Coulthard and is out of the Belgian... Fernando is faster than you. His engine has blown and his chances of winning the Malaysia Grand Prix with it. Oh no, no! Let me alone, I know Hello and welcome, I'm David Hollywood And I'm John Daly And this is The Driving Line F1 Podcast Coming up on this week's show, I deviate from my usual triple barrel to congratulate one Lewis Hamilton on his fifth world championship, no less Quite a feat matched by only two other drivers ever. Elsewise, we analyse Hartley's lashing out at Toro Rosso now that he's nearing the end of his life there, and we take another look at that mercurial transfer market. Still got that triple barrel in. But first, here's David with all the news from the Formula One world and the top 10 from the Mexican GP. Muchos gracias, John, which is thank you very much in Spanish, the official language of Mexico. And it's the top 10 from the Mexican Grand Prix that we go to first. Max Verstappen gets his second race win of the season for Red Bull. Second was Sebastian Vettel for Ferrari. And the second Ferrari, Kimi Raikkonen, completed the podium in third Five-time world champion Lewis Hamilton was fourth for Mercedes. Fifth was Valtteri Bottas in the sister Mercedes. Sixth was Nico Hulkenberg. Best of the rest for Renault. Seventh was Charles Leclerc for Sauber. Stoffel van Dorn returned to the points in the McLaren in eighth position. Marcus Ericsson was ninth for Sauber. And Pierre Gasly rounded out the top ten in the final points-paying position for Toro Rosso. And it is, of course, to Lewis Hamilton's fifth world title that we move to first. John it was certainly not the manner in which he wished to claim a fifth world title for the second year in a row. He had to do it awkwardly beside the podium, but not on the podium. But nonetheless, as uh, James Allison and the rest of the Mercedes team were at pains to point out, that championship was won on merit throughout the season, no questions asked. Yeah, absolutely. It was won on merit throughout the season and they did a, they did a great job throughout the season, a great team effort. However, it is a little bit lacklustre when he has probably, when I say he, I refer to Lewis Hamilton, he had possibly the worst race he's had all season. It was it was mad to see them be so slow. Like, uh, it, I don't know, I suppose it doesn't mar the, uh, the achievement itself, but it maybe mars the event. Yeah, it does. It, it lessens the occasion and it's it's much of a muchness I think for most F1 fans but certainly from a Mercedes perspective that's not how they would have wanted to celebrate the title that being said it was a magnificent achievement is a magnificent achievement and it just stands so favourably in comparison with the history of Formula 1 Juan Manuel Fangio five world titles Michael Schumacher seven world titles Lewis Hamilton five world titles they're out there on their own, the best three of all time in terms of those statistics. And I have prepared some vital statistics for us, John, to help us celebrate Lewis Hamilton's fifth world title. He has had 227 races in the Formula One Championship. 71 of those have been wins with an astounding 132 podiums and career points of 2,968, which is a bit of a wash considering the new points system came into being throughout his career. Uh, 81 pole positions, which I think is possibly the standout. 81 pole positions, 71 race wins. He gets it done on Saturday and he typically gets it done on Sunday's 41 uh, fastest laps to boot. And that's all remarkable and fantastic. 
and his career is so much celebrated. But there's one particular aspect I find most interesting that doesn't get the airtime it possibly deserves uh, in a sport that certainly is lacking in this respect. Hamilton is the first and only black driver to race in Formula One and therefore hmm. will most likely be the most successful black driver of all time in the sport, bar none, for as long as we may live. Wow, that is actually quite remarkable. It's not one of uh, really confronted because we... I think uh, the lack of women in the sport gets quite a lot of coverage, but that's not something that's uh, that's talked about very much at all, and it should be. Yeah, it's it. There should be a bigger question mark over that as to why Formula One. I suppose just demographically, where the sport is big, doesn't have um, those as big numbers, maybe in terms of African American participation and and uh, population makeup. That being said, like you look at a country like Brazil and. It just goes to show it's an elitist sport in so many ways. And Lewis Hamilton's family and father famously dedicated their whole makeup and, and thrust and drive to getting him into the sport. And, you know, he's he's justified every penny that's been either moved in his direction or been sponsored towards him. He's grown as well in front of our eyes, I think, from a kind of quiet, unassuming character from Stevenage when he arrived in the sport to this bordering on obnoxious, self-obsessed, um, pseudo-celebrity type character, which he became in the early years at Mercedes, to this point now where I think he is straddling the point of sincerity. He's nearly there. He's nearly a sincere person. Um, <laughs> you, do you know what I'm saying, though? Like, he has... He's he certainly softened the edges of his character that I think people found frustrating. There's still... He still frustrates me to, to listen to and to watch, but certainly far less than, than in previous seasons. I don't know. I didn't think that might just be a you thing. I find him every bit as irritating. Um, I think he's, he's changed in how he's irritating, but not really lessened the blow, like the uh, deifying of himself. Acting, yeah. acting as though he's a god or, um, you know, holier-than-thou attitude that often comes out from him. I, th- I think we got a bit less of that in previous seasons, a little bit more arrogance in previous seasons. Um, neither of them are, are less annoying to me. They're they're both very annoying. And, you know, I don't mean to just harp on uh, from the negative aspect, of course, and I've said it many, many, many times. I think he's an absolutely incredible driver, definitely spoken of as, as one of the greatest of all time. But personality-wise, like, I think I'd, I'd sit and have a beer with him and, and that'd be about it. I think I'd probably have to get up and leave the table after that because he'd probably be telling me about his album or his fashion line or, you know, his beliefs. <laughs> that's that's where we'd start disagreeing. God forbid he uh, he articulated his beliefs to you over a beer. Um, <laughs> do, do you know, though, okay, so here's an, it, another argument for you then. In, in, it, we're, we're comparing him to, well, not necessarily, but let's compare him to Fangio and Schumacher and other drivers who have achieved as as great a feats as he has done. I heard an interesting perspective from the very British-centric focused Sky Sports production that he's not been as controversial as other world champions, that Senna was divisive, that Fangio in his day was highly divisive and arrogant and that Michael Schumacher, you know, was highly controversial, broke so many rules on track Let's take away the off-track stuff and just look at his character on track. He plays by the rules. He drives fairly. He doesn't bash into people. Schumacher against Hill. Schumacher against Villeneuve. Mm. He, he 
always seems to do the right thing on the track when other driver's safety is concerned and that type of thing. And I think that most certainly stands in his credit column. Yeah, 100% can't abide by any uh, driver intentionally making anything more dangerous for, for other drivers. I do think it's a bit of a cultural thing, though. I mean, especially Fangio or Prost's time, that's you're talking about a totally different uh, era and generation um, totally totally different attitude and outlook to the sport um, it would be so much less tolerated now I think if drivers were, were were bashing into each other maliciously like Vettel in Baku yeah exactly like Vettel in Baku like the the outcry from fans and from um, the FIA and from drivers themselves and from Vettel's face afterwards I think really said it all so yeah I just I mean like you have to remember I mean I, st- I still look at that grid and I, I see, you know, Verstappen has already become a highly controversial character for many reasons and, and people enjoy it as well. But his his movement under braking when he joined the sport and Vettel obviously has a cavalcade of incidents with Ferraris in the last couple of seasons. And it just doesn't seem to be in in Hamilton's makeup. And I think that so much of it owes to his that superiority that he probably feels about himself that is repugnant off track manifests itself in a far safer, more impressive driver on the track. It's an interesting uh, perspective. Yeah, you're, you're, you're probably right in that sense. When you look at certain other drivers in the, in the grid now, you just can't see him acting the way that they do. No, and, you know, look at the, the midfield schmozzle that consistently happens in the last number of races that typically just takes Alonso out of the Grand Prix <laughs> um, that uh, that type of stuff you just you don't see him getting mixed up in um, but look ultimately I, I'm in agreement with you actually on the point of his his being annoying it's actually it's not disappeared it's just changed in its form and I probably find it less frustrating than um than the more obnoxious character that he seemed to be in previous seasons, the self-deification thing is is not great. Though I have to I have to concede that point. Uh, so yeah, five-time world champion, possibly many more championships to come. You look at how long Kimi Raikkonen has gone in the sport, being competitive. Fernando Alonso, a few years older than Hamilton as well, and if Hamilton stays hungry, all the records are up for grabs. Like, can he really, could he really entertain the possibility of not going for seven? He's only two away. He's possibly, you know, going to have one more season of being super strong because Mercedes is doing great in this reg. Um, when you're not, like, I mean, I just put myself in his shoes and I can't even fathom leaving the sport before having a pop at seven. Absolutely. I, I would be completely in agreement with you on that. He, all, he has all the tools He's driving better than ever. There's no sense or sign of decline. His personal profile, which he may put a lot of stock in, is just consistently on the rise. And he's in the best team, unquestionably in the best team still at the moment. Mm-hmm. And and, and it, I think it would only take a, a departure of competitiveness in terms of Mercedes, um, a strong, a really bad deviation in, in the quality of, the, of their car mm-hmm. for him to either move team and that's always a lottery to a certain degree uh, or indeed move away from the sport. So look, he's going to be the odds on favourite for next year's title and then naturally if he took that, he's going to hang in there as long as possible to at least match Schumacher's records. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a phenom, no question about it. 
and um, hats off to him from the Driving Line F1 podcast any last words on him there John uh, yeah I sincerely hope I do see him get to seven whatever about I think about his personality it's um, he's a wonder to see on track truly a, a phenom as you say and I would love to see him do it yeah and you know it feels like we're going round in circles on Hamilton because we we started saying this stuff a month or so out because it was um, it was a fait accompli uh, kind of long before this Grand Prix happened and that simply is owed to the fact that he has been by far the best driver on the grid for the season uh, someone you probably couldn't say that about John is Marcus Ericsson he's never been the best driver on the Formula 1 grid and he wasn't the best driver in the junior formula on the grids typically either and it's confirmed that he is of course departing Formula 1 he will remain at Sauber as a Sauber ambassador and their third driver however he's making the move to IndyCar to the Schmidt-Peterson Motorsport Honda team he'll partner James Hinchcliffe who's currently 10th in the IndyCar Championship a couple of races left on their calendar and um, John you were taken back, taken aback by the idea that Ericsson has been in this sport for half a decade yeah, I suppose this is going to sound really harsh, but I suppose it's because he's had such an unremarkable time in it, in the sport the whole time he's been here that you kind of kind of don't take stock and notice him. Maybe, um, yeah, I can't believe it's been ninety seven races, or it will be ninety seven races by the the time the the season ends that he's participated in, and two of those have been point scoring seasons, sixteen points in total. That's oh god. Uh, that's a, that's a poor record. High time, uh, new blood came in in that respect. And I think that's the exciting thing about next year. That So we've enjoyed the driver transfer market this season for its just complete unpredictability and the scale and scope of the changes. Like Next year's grid will be nearly unrecognisable from this year's one. But there seems to be a lot of kind of, I don't mean to, this sounds really harsh, but Marcus Ericsson is dead wood in terms of racing perception and the lineup at Sauber next year a race winner from this year Kimi Raikkonen and former world champion and the talented and fast Antonio Giovinazzi that kind of that feel of newness for next year I think is a really big positive and with the likes of Leclerc moving up and Gasly moving up into championship potentially championship winning teams that's really been a positive aspect of, of um, looking forward to next year, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's always exciting to see new blood come into the sport, and particularly at Sauber, there's there's going to be, you know, the two new drivers. That's um, that's always something positive to look forward to, and especially on the crest of the wave that the team in general seems to be on. The car has obviously taken big steps of improvement, so having fresh faces of that, I think, will energise the team. It certainly has energised my looking forward to, to seeing the team in the years to come and then someone who is neither old blood nor new he's raced in Formula 1 for a couple of seasons for Sauber and Haas um, but has been departed since being kicked out of Haas essentially is Esteban Gutierrez now being linked with that most popular of seats at the moment in terms of the rumour mill the Williams seat to partner George Russell Robert Kubica um, is line for is in line for a Ferrari development role if he doesn't get that seat and he said he won't wait until the expected December date for Williams to announce that seat so unless Kubica gets a sensational confirmation of return to Formula 1 um, he will go over to Ferrari to um, basically drive their simulator and he will be a safe pair of hands in terms of feedback and Ferrari's understanding of their car may well improve uh, from weekend to weekend with him in the simulator and it, it was one of his stated goals in his career he said he had three goals to um, 
I think it was to win the world championship to win a race and to drive for Ferrari and ultimately he didn't get to complete those goals in the way that he wished to he did win a race um, he won't get to drive for Ferrari but he will get to work for them and all in all regardless of the fact he may not ever race another Grand Prix it's been a phenomenal comeback for Kubica and still remains a good news story yeah absolutely we've talked about Kubica a couple of times in the show and just such an, a, a terrible ordeal that he went through so to see him make that uh, make that return to the sport in whatever capacity he can it's great to see I'd love to see him in an actual seat um, pretty understandable that he's not going to wait on, on Williams especially if they're going to leave it to the last minute if you get the opportunity to be a, a development driver for Ferrari that's still as development roles go it's pretty up there um, and, and does still position you for, for seats next year or the year after so it's a, it's a beneficial move for him. Another man moving possibly away from Formula One a la Marcus Ericsson is Brendan Hartley who's just had an unremarkable career in the sport. Former Le Mans winner and uh, came in halfway through last season so kind of judgment was um, we, we didn't judge him too quickly on that and then this season he sh- he's certainly shown flashes of pace but it looks like Alexander Albon will replace him next year and I think the most damning thing that makes that most likely sounding is the fact that Hartley has gone off the reservation and is starting to contradict his team and his teammates in terms of the information they're putting out and it's um, yet another messy end to a Toro Rosso career for a driver. <laughs> There's been a couple of them haven't there. It's that it's just that type of team that's the role that it fulfills. It's a it it churns through drivers to try find appropriate ones for the sister team. Uh, yeah, this Hartley spat is a bit bizarre so for those who haven't been following Hartley is, is refuting that uh, Gasly's floor is damaged in, in Austin which Toro Rosso and Gasly have both said was the case it was one of the few times that Hartley actually got the better of Gasly in a race and when he was asked about it further in Mexico he just uh, he said he wasn't allowed to talk about it which is rather bizarre it is and uh, when Gasly was asked about Hartley's comments he said at the moment he says a lot of things uh, which just um, further illustrates the breakdown in relationship there between Hartley and the rest of the Toro Rosso group as it were so um, I quite liked Brendan Hartley um, I, I speak of him as if he's passed or something but I quite liked uh, I quite like his demeanour and um, his attitude in terms of getting back into a sport that burnt him up when he was much younger so so credit to him for getting back into the sport and getting a seat on the Formula 1 grid this season however it does look like it's coming to an ignominious end to a certain degree there uh, on to Mercedes and this is a hot pot of um, very confusing information. So let's just run through it, John, and then react to it. Mercedes have denied that their bad results in the last two Grand Prix have been related to them dropping their controversial wheel rim cooling design. Uh, so the nub of this is that they created a new wheel rim design for the rear wheels with a lot more basic, uh, basically notches and holes in the, the, the alloyed rim itself um, I don't even know if it's alloy metal it's probably something much higher spec than that Ferrari were threatening to protest the cooling design because they felt it had aero benefits and the general spirit of the laws let's say or the rule of thumb when it comes to uh, new designs on the car that are for cooling or for any other reason uh, or issue is that if they're in a spot that aero design is not allowed the piece can't be a moving aero piece that's generally the the big question and obviously as the wheel spins round Ferrari felt that they may have grounds to protest Mercedes said well look we're going to get rid of it but we're going to make the FIA clarify that the whole thing was legal uh, which the FIA did 
Um, but they're still getting rid of it. The concept will generally be addressed at the next technical working group meeting before the Brazil Grand Prix. And Total Wolf has insisted the issues they had at the last two Grand Prix were coincidental to this not uh, being in place. Their tyres did seem to go off really badly at the last Grand Prix, though. This just bangs of your usual intrigue and mystery in the world of Formula One politics. So... Mercedes were markedly worse in the previous two races, which is when they've dropped these, this uh, design. And uh, no, no, it's okay. You don't need to. You don't need to do a further investigation. We don't. We don't want it anyway. Doesn't uh, doesn't benefit us, but we can just get rid of it anyway. We didn't want that in the first place. I don't know. It feels like it always feels like in these that you're never going to know the full story, and it's always just suspicions and and uh, people giving stink eyes across the room kind of thing. <laughs> and it's maddening and fascinating at the same time. It's like, um, you know, Ferrari were rumoured to have a pretty controversial battery system when they suddenly came out with, like, the best engine of the last half a decade in a few Grand Prix ago. And amongst much rancour and, and Mercedes pointing fingers and stink eyes, as you say, you know, Ferrari never said they got rid of it or changed it, and and the FIA said they were fully legal. But suddenly, the engine just seemed to not be as strong as it was in the past. And the annoying thing for fans is that the the, the transparency isn't there. But the fascinating thing is, the transparency isn't there. So I don't know what we do with it. But it's it's you know that I lo- I really enjoy it, and I think that you find it interesting and frustrating, maybe in equal quantities. Yeah, probably. I would really, really, really like to understand these things a little bit more like the the whole oil burning issue um yeah like that that was never really there wasn't a singular moment where they really peeled back the skin of this and let us know exactly what was going on no it was always like you know accusations being thrown around and there's investigations going on and oh look this team appears to be a good bit worse now that they're investigating you never really get the whole meat of the story you're always trying to piece it together but i mean as you say as you rightly say it is fascinating in and of itself trying to trying to guess what teams are doing and and who's going to be affected by by what ruling and whatnot. Yeah, and it will be maybe in a decade's time. Someone, a designer, a la Adrian Newey, brought out a book last year. You know, we'll have to wait for James Allison's book to come out in fifteen years to maybe get an insight into one of these issues. But that's <laughs> that's that's as close to the veil being lifted as possible. But look, Mercedes were seriously off the pace at the Mexico Grand Prix it was fascinating to watch they were by far worse than Red Bull and a decent bit in the race worse than Ferrari we are going to review the Mexican Grand Prix next and out goes Pipe my goodness he's furious and take that oh my goodness the Mexico Grand Prix won by Max Verstappen dominated by Red Bull and John I felt ultimately quite foolish for weighing in so heavily on the altitude factor and uh, the possibility that Renault would benefit from this after you know after just basically ravaging on about it quite a bit on our last episode it, uh, it transpired at that altitude or no whatever it was the Renault engine was humming better than it ever has done before yeah absolutely I mean all credit has to be given to you in, in that regard it certainly was a fantastic equaliser much more so than it has in previous years it was really interesting to see quite how competitive the Renault pl- power plant was relative to the two others and it maybe like gave us a greater insight as to how the, the aerodynamics of the respective teams were, are working out yeah that actually was very interesting and totally discouraging for McLaren and Williams who 
you know, had confirmation, particularly McLaren, who had the Renault engine, once again, just your car, lads, does not do it. It like it is it is a fully terrible package from top to bottom, even when the en- uh, the engine issue is relatively eliminated. And, and it was just striking to see the strength with which Red Bull came out of the blocks in the first two practice sessions. Hamilton was 1.4 seconds off um, the lead Red Bull in free practice one and 1.3 off the lead Red Bull in FP2. And that lead Red Bull was Max Verstappen in every single session bar qualifying. We'll get onto that very shortly. But And then even more jarring that uh, four of the top six in practice one and four of the top five in practice two were Renault-powered cars with the other two uh, with the works Renaults getting you know getting ahead of Ferrari and Mercedes, it was really refreshing to see. Anyway, that was certainly the first the first reaction I had to it. Look, we talk about diversity in the sport and how it lacks it. Sometimes is probably my biggest complaint with the sport, and it's exactly what the FAA are trying to fix. That's just really a breath of fresh air to see teams that don't compete towards the front of the grid to actually be capable of doing so. It's very exciting to see. Renault up there actually beating the likes of Ferrari and and Mercedes we need a little bit more of that we need the possibility of other race winners I think whatever about the 2016 race at Mexico certainly last year the evidence was that the Renault engine was massively boosted or quite the opposite in terms of Ferrari and Mercedes engines where their their advantage was negated but that quote-unquote advantage for Renault was negated by how unreliable their engines were at that point last season. They had to probably run them on lower power, and even still, most of them, most of the half of them didn't get to the finish anyway. So that's probably what masked their advantage at Mexico for this year. But I don't think anyone will be in any doubt whatsoever as to what to expect next season if the dynamics engine-wise stay the same throughout the season. Renault will just be licking their lips at the prospect of the Mexican Grand Prix forevermore while these engines are in existence while they don't have equality elsewhere on other tracks and it's also Red Bull's first front row lockout since the new engine regulation era in 2014 four long years after four wonderfully successful years that was uh, yeah it's just (laughs) It's a, a new, a, quite a new feeling thing and certainly was enjoyable. That front row, though, got absolutely smashed to bits after the, the, the start there. Daniel Ricciardo, he snatched pole position from a massively frustrated Max Verstappen and Ricciardo hammed it up quite nicely, but quite understandably, it's been such a tough run for him. Not only does he qualify Verstappen for the first time in what feels like an age, he gets pole position and you know, denies Verstappen the chance to break the record for being the youngest ever pole sitter. Yeah, that's got to sit pretty rough in uh, in Max Verstappen's lap. While watching qualifying towards the end of it, I felt like it was all for Verstappen to do. He he was behind Ricardo on track, significantly behind him, like a third or a half of a lap behind him, and out of traffic, like in clean air. So he had every opportunity to put in a better lap in that sec- second stint, and a couple of people didn't improve, but you know, the opportunity was there for him and it just again highlights the amazing lap that Ricardo actually ended up putting in. And kind of interesting you you talk about the start, Christian Horner after the race, it was very interesting to hear him talk about the the start in particular as the sky guys were, were quizzing him. And they're like, 
Christian, can you tell us what do you think happened at the start there with uh, with Ricardo? He seemed to get bogged down quite significantly. Well, you know, he got a good bit of wheel spin. I think I think he's probably a bit over eager and, and and just floored it a little bit too much. You're like, whoa! I wonder if he was staying at the team. Would you actually say it quite that way? Absolutely, couldn't agree with you more. Great point. There's there seems to be a bit of messaging back and forth between yeah the, the two, and it's not particularly positive. Uh, and it's it, who was it? It was Maldonado. Quite comically, suggested Williams had sabotaged their own car because of the amount of issues he was having with it when he was clearly on the way out of the team. Now it's not anywhere near that level of uh, disharmony, but all the same, there does seem to be a lessening in the positivity ranks there between Ricardo and Red Bull. And that kind of takes me by surprise. I expected them to part on completely positive terms, but certainly it looks like both can't wait to get away from each other. Well, it's the type of character that Ricardo is. You just can't imagine him Look, put it this way, 18 months ago, I couldn't imagine the words, the tone and the way that Ricardo has said certain things over the last 18 months. Like that man swears regularly now. He is a lot more scathing and harsh in the things that he says. And Christian Horner, if you talk to him, like, for example, the Sky Guys again were quizzing him. Is Max Verstappen going to become the youngest ever pole sitter? Oh, you know, we'll find out in the next three and a half minutes. Or, oh, it's all to play for. He he hedges it. He always, like, kind of box it and says, oh, we'll we'll wait and see. What happened at the start there with Daly Ricardo? He floored it. He messed it up. <laughs> that was his instant response. So I think there's there's definitely a difference in tone coming out since the announcement of Daniel Ricardo moving to Renault. It's fair enough in a certain sense, but as you as you say, I didn't expect it either. Just with such a charismatic guy as Ricardo, I would have never thought that it devolved to that situation. No, and what was clear throughout the weekend was that Red Bull would at least be a massive factor in the story of the race win on the Sunday. And with the front row locked out, it seemed like possibly the only hope for the rest were would be that they'd take each other out and Ricardo's start certainly deprived the neutral or the fans of Mercedes and Ferrari from seeing that and and deprived most of the other drivers from getting that access to first or second place but not Lewis Hamilton who just simply seared past Daniel Ricardo and going into turn one had the drop on Verstappen as well and just chickened on the brakes clearly chickened on the brakes because he had to go and win a world title yeah, I'm glad you said it first. He definitely, like, I think the whole race was characterized by him being way more controlled than we've ever seen. Like, possibly to a, a slightly ludicrous degree, he didn't need to be quite that reserved. But I understand that at the same time, it's very, very likely that this is the place he's going to clinch the World Championship and there's no need to have it be a marred victory, where one where he loses front wing and has to pay it or uh, takes another driver out of the race or indeed retires and then has to postpone it for another race I think it was a very very controlled race from him and turn one was a great example of that yeah also a conservative start was uh, Sebastian Vettel who clearly had taken his medicine from the last number of Grand Prix and the spins in the first corner and lap incidents he was another from the helicopter view of the first corner seemed to drop back in the braking zone and allowed the first four cars in front of him to kind of play out. He, he stayed in fifth, only narrowly staying in fifth. Bottas seemed to get him, then then Vettel held him off, and remarkably, 
he still managed to make contact with someone. He made contact with Bottas. And I don't know if you saw this. It was a slight contact, but in the exact same position that saw the Ferrari spin in the last number of races. And this time, you know, he he was okay. And physically, the dynamics looked normal. It's remarkable, though, that he still managed to have that little incident in what was clearly, I think, an approach to trying to get through that first lap on skate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> it's so fortunate for him that he really tried to dance around it and still ended up in basically the exact same situation as the last four times <laughs> that he ended up spinning. And 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 he drove a brilliant race. Like evidence, if he ever wanted it, that if you've got a decent car, which he's had at every Grand Prix, no question, there is a way to get into the position you need to despite the fact you've not got it done as soon as it was first seemingly possible like this was a great illustration of exploiting the pace in the car over the the, the size and sample size of a race as opposed to desperately throwing it down the inside of drivers who won't give them that space absolutely I I attest that this is the type of drive and the type of battle that Vettel should have been putting up all season. And I also attest that if he had done that throughout the season, if he had driven like he drove during this race, championship would have been far, far closer. I thought he drove out of his skin. For me, he would get the driver of the day if it weren't for Max Verstappen, just because that was a flawlessly controlled drive from the front. Maybe a little bit unfair to Vettel in the sense that the Red Bull clearly just had the, the speed advantage. But this was like a f- absolutely. F- I was singing Vettel's praises at the end of it. I think it was very, it was a very mature drive, and he c- conducted himself very maturely afterwards as well. I'd like to add. But if he drove like that all season long, Hamilton wouldn't have run away with the championship the way that he did. Like if you just avoid those silly, silly mistakes, of which there were many, you know, it would have been a very close championship. Yeah, and considering the fact that Lewis Hamilton didn't make any of those silly mistakes like not one that's the other side of the coin there while Mm -hmm. Vettel wasn't perfect it's not every year your opponent is actually perfect so it was a perfect storm and for Vettel considering the errors and the dropped points to have taken it this far in the first place place only goes to show how much of a chance Ferrari had this year and ultimately how much they've kind of let it slip it's it's a bit of a disaster from their perspective. They can't expect to keep producing cars of that standard year in, year out, because no team really does. Mercedes, I think, are hanging on by their fingernails from a design and engineering perspective. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the longer it goes on in the same engine regs, the closer everyone else is going to to come, and Ferrari really mounted a fantastic challenge. I think, on balance, Ferrari had the better car over the length of the season just a combination of strategy errors and driver errors ended up costing them that that championship and ultimately we're going to have an engine reg change soon enough it's right around the corner and that'll just throw things right up in the air every time that this happens we see it time and time again it's a it's an instant reshuffling a, a, a jumble of the order and so that opportunity for mercedes to be this dominant again might not come for another 20 30 years yeah, so for Vettel and for Hamilton, I think, apart from trying to... Naturally, Hamilton and Mercedes are going to try to take that Constructors' Championship at the Brazilian Grand Prix, but more or less, they're both looking forward to 2019, and Vettel will have a much different prospect on his plate regarding his teammate and Charles Leclerc. 
And I think Vettel will naturally be just hoping that his momentum in the team that he has will um, see him safely throughout the season by maybe getting an advantage at the start of the season. Leclerc could very well come into things after a few Grand Prix, I suspect, a la what he did at Sauber. First few races, not the greatest, found his feet and has just been brilliant since. And we'll get on to Leclerc in a moment. I just want to uh, refer to that first lap again. Fernando Alonso is having the most soporific and depressing departure from a sport that any driver or athlete or sports person really could have ever hoped for. The last two Grand Prix have just been complete and utter vindication as to why he needs to get out if he can't get into a car that isn't in the midfield. Yeah, the incident on lap one here for for Alonso was (laughs) one of the most bizarre, bleak and unfortunate events yeah, Alonso once again with his with the first lap incidents that are absolutely nothing to do with him. Unfortunately, as he as he said last race, he just can't drive with these idiots, apparently. So for those of you who didn't didn't quite catch it during the race or maybe at all, coming up the turn two, Alonso being the wily character that he is, was staying well out of danger, and danger just found him. It was Esteban Ocon who had his nose wiped by a Renault with bits of debris flying everywhere. And Alonso smartly took the exit route over the curb out onto the runoff area, and he even described it afterwards as a million to one shot. A bit of the front wing, a very large part of the front wing from Ocon, managed to get lodged in the the, the barge boards, the under tray of the of the of the car, almost into the the air intake, overheating the car massively. And he lasted about half a lap before he had to pull in and retire from the race. A very unfortunate and ridiculous way to have to exit the Grand Prix. Yeah, and he only has two races left, not to redeem himself or anything like that, but just to change the tone and the mood music around his departure from the sport. Because if at at the very least he deserves, you know, some points scoring send off. And uh, let's kind of... skip to the end just for a second since we're on McLaren stuff of Van Dorn what an horrendous season he's had I mean you stick any driver in that McLaren and sadly for McLaren you you know any driver would have had an horrendous season but this was great he, he's back in the points and he drove in a phenomenal stint I think he went 40 or 50 laps on one set of tyres which in the which on the Sunday at Mexico was a phenomenal achievement to do that at the pace he did and to to finish up in the points. It's kind of a few more of those earlier in the season may have seen him survive another season at least. Yeah, it was a really commendable drive, one of the very few he's had. And yeah, as you rightly say, if he had a couple more of them in the middle of the season, you could have maybe given a bit more hope and thought to him seeing out a couple of more seasons. But like on balance maybe it's not enough it's interesting how it's produced quite at this time because the car really wasn't there and maybe that relieving of the pressure has just allowed him to be the driver that he can be and maybe he was just cracking a little bit throughout the season yeah it's just so hard to parse when you're talking about backmarker cars uh, Marcus Ericsson versus Charles Leclerc we know Charles Leclerc is excellent and we know the Sauber hasn't been brilliant so how bad is Marcus Ericsson? He's starting to score points regularly this season in a car that's developing and becoming better and stuff of Van Dorn versus Fernando Alonso. Van Dorn has performed brilliantly in every other motorsport uh, category he's raced in 
and has just come up against Alonso in a car that's presumably really difficult to drive and really uncompetitive so it's hard to say where he's frayed and lost the plot let's say which when you're talking about a lack of uh, results on the scale of Van Dorn's or Ericsson's you have to say that that's down to the driver as well as the car but you also have to acknowledge like when and where God knows because it's an unenviable position to be in yeah of course if you're putting put against a driver that's just absolutely phenomenal you're always going to pale in comparison perhaps Marcus Ericsson had the easier job there I mean undoubtedly Marcus Ericsson had the easier job there but um, Stoffel van Dorn was was always off to a to a, to a losing fight when he was up against Fernando Alonso. Nonetheless, as you say, I think there's been enough evidence that he really should have had those results by now, and he hasn't. So we just alluded to the tires there with van Dorn and and what a impressive performance he put in 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 getting them to go so long. Mercedes, John, Mercedes and their tires. This was fascinating, I thought, just how poor they were on the on the tyres all weekend and especially on the Sunday. And it's a theme, like when they get well beaten, which is only a handful of times over the course of the last four years, it's the tyres have been the biggest problem for them, hands down. And I suppose this is the worst Mercedes performance of the new reg era since 2014. That's That's certainly the case, isn't it? Yeah, most definitely. And the tires have always been their Achilles heel. When it's exactly as you're saying, when things go wrong, it's nearly always down to the tires, often them not warming up, but just generally the setup not being friendly to the tires. I just wish it would happen a little bit more often, you know? I'd I'd like if they had throughout this season in particular at least a comparable number of problems to Ferrari, but if buts and maybes they were just a almost impeccable team except for those few places where the tyres really went off for them and whatever about being impeccable for the rest of the season you know it's not like they um, when they go a bit bad they did it they did it to small measures here Valtteri Bottas got lapped and Lewis Hamilton finished 1 minute 18 down on the race winner that's uh, that's stuff you won't see again presumably just no Bottas being lapped that's just so crazy we're talking about it off air the the difference between the the midfield and the the front six runners at the moment the front six runners are always you know you can always talk about them as the separation of seconds by the end of the race for Valtteri Bottas to be lapped is absolutely incredible now I don't want to do Mercedes a disservice here both drivers took very late pit stops in order to just secure the positions they were in they were marooned in a in a sea of space so they had no reason not to take that pit stop but nonetheless even without that that's just a shocking margin right there it, it detracts from the sport actually in all honesty as a, as a sincere fan of it it's not good no, especially when it's down to a piece of equipment that is not designed by the team, you know. Now, their their use of the piece of equipment on their car is their responsibility, essentially, and that is why they suffered so much. But by the same token, you would rather, you know, see them suffer. If they're going to suffer, you want to see them suffer because the driving isn't as good, the engineering isn't as good, as opposed to, like, there's too much talk of tyres full stop and this is another race where that was the case that being said 
it threw up an interesting result and an interesting race as a consequence. Uh, the midfield was interesting as well. Like it was kind of decided firstly by Force India just having a stinker of a race despite being on by far the best strategy going into Sunday. They they purposely missed Q3 for that tire choice advantage having a very advantageous P11 and P13 going into the race on Sunday. And uh, it, it was really compromised by the Saubers on the Hypers. So Leclerc and Ericsson looked like sitting ducks on those tyre strategies. They're on the Hypersoft, which are just bubblegum tyres that melt and get destroyed and all sense of pace will depart. But what ultimately happened in that first stint was Marcus Ericsson was kept out on the Hypers to allow Charles Leclerc and ultimately the two Renaults to scarper off uh, away from the chasing midfield. So Force Indy were balked there and then Sergio Perez, running long in the Supersofts, managed to raise his way into the best of the rest position. It was going to be between himself and Hulkenberg as Science dropped out with the DNF and then his brakes fail. Hmm. Really unfortunate race from for, for Force India and we talk disparagingly about Marcus Ericsson but he had a phenomenal race to have a compromised strategy and then drive back through the field. He was last at one point to eventually score points again. Now, he benefited from a couple of DNFs, but he put himself in a position to do so. And uh, Charles Leclerc, once again, very good performance. Anyone who gets points in that best of the rest has had a great race by default these days because of how competitive it is. Yeah, I alluded to the frustration of the front six being so separated from the middle of the pack but one thing I have to say that I've enjoyed about this season is that middle pack is no longer distinct from the rear of the field or at least not as badly as it has been uh, over the the lifetime that I've been watching Formula 1 it has been a hell of a lot closer I suppose Williams now occupying that last position in the pecking order but still being a lot closer to some of the cars in front than even Sauber themselves have been some years in the past. So it was actually a pretty impressive drive from Ericsson to be capable of of maintaining the position that he did. And yeah, terrible for for Checo. I feel like I should refer to him by his fr- first name considering the amount of fans that were were screaming "Vamos Checo." <laughs> Very unfortunate for the home crowd. It seems to it seems to often be the case that. When there's a the home support is rallying behind somewhere, the, the someone, some way or another, they get disappointed when not necessarily how they perform, but the outcome of the race. It doesn't seem to ever be sympathetic to the desires of the the home fans. No, sure. Just look at Sebastian Vettel at the German Grand Prix as being a prime example, and Lewis Hamilton getting spun around in the first corner at Silverstone, another example of um, the home crowd being sincerely disappointed by matters on the track. That being said, Perez drove well, had a good race, and ultimately he just goes very well. He harnesses that pressure and that atmosphere in a very positive way, which is I, I really enjoy seeing. I think typically Daniel Ricciardo hasn't performed great at the Australian Grand Prix. Famously, Jensen Button never got a podium at Silverstone. You know, just crazy stuff. So it is, it's great to see that Perez really becomes this this whole new entity when going to Mexico. And that really, like the Grand Prix itself, let's just talk briefly on that before we wrap this up. This is another Grand Prix, kind of like Austin, Texas, that seems to have found its feet. Now, it's it's more coming back on the calendar because we have raced there before, uh, as, as we mentioned on our preview episode. Now, it helps that you've got a Mexican driver, but they do love their motorsport, and it's so well attended. 
and the track is decent there's been good racing there's unique differentiators in terms of like I said the altitude and uh, and it has that history regardless and now we've had a number of world championships decided at the track I think along the lines of uh, Singapore and the circuit of the Americas this one occupies a very positive place in the fans minds I don't know <laughs> I, I I don't I don't feel that way about it no, and 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 you've actually, in fairness, now you've you you mentioned that on on our preview of of the Grand Prix, mm. but I, I I would say that the like I said the investment that Liberty Media, like it or lump it, the podium celebrations are, you know they get Armin van Buren, one of the world's biggest DJs, and they they sell out a thirty thousand stadium section along with another thirty forty fifty thousand. I'm not sure what the number of the full attendance was for the weekend. It, it's um, it's certainly been a hit with the locals, no question. Yeah, and that's awesome. I love that there is such a such support for the motorsport culture there. And and let me just say, I do love. I th- I think it's very important for us to have a couple of really unique, challenging tracks in their own right. You look at Singapore. You look at Monaco, and you look at somewhere like Mexico with the the high altitude. These are weird constraints that you put on the engineers on the drivers and it's not one that you can just like engineer out because you have to make it viable at all other tracks as well as this weird one so i i love that aspect to it i think the track itself it's hard to follow and you know this is a systemic problem in the modern era of formula one that it is just really hard to follow cars in front of you and particularly at this track it can be hard to follow and i think you know I'd like if that were spiced up a bit, but the peripherals around that I do really like about the the Mexican Grand Prix. And and in fairness, you know we saw Vettel really have a charge through the fields, which was fascinating, and he did manage to get the job done in 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 places that I didn't think you could get it done. And we also we didn't actually exactly touch on it, but the battle between Perez and Ericsson was actually pretty fascinating at certain points. They were getting very, very close, and then when Perez pit, pitted, he managed to actually catch back up to him. They had another duel uh, and overtook each other more than once. So it's not like you can't overtake at this track. I just it's not really up there as an overtaking track. And maybe in in incoming years, as I get more and more familiar with it, it'll the special place in my heart, a la Singapore, Monaco. I think it's the DJ that really puts Dude, it off this what, whole experience. Like, why can't the FIA just stop doing that? Well, Liberty Media, I don't think um, Charlie Whiting and Ross <laughs> Braun are behind. It, it doesn't have their Apologies, stamp. Apologies, you're right. Uh, may, uh, we talked about this off air again, but maybe maybe it's just us being a misnomer here. Maybe we don't have our fingers on the pulse of the, of the Formula One fans' world, but to me, that is the antithesis of what most fans are going to want to watch. It, uh, I just got so annoyed while trying to listen to an interview with Christian Horner right after the race and he even commented on it like oh I can't even hear myself think because of this outrageous house music that's blaring right behind me on this immaculate amazing impressive stage and you just have you know banging tunes coming coming out is it is it just, please tell us is it just me you listening at home you right you right there tell us is it just me being mad and everyone actually really enjoys this or or are we talking sense here 
Yeah, that would be an interesting one to get feedback on because John and I are in agreement that it it feels incongruous. It doesn't work. The podium celebration has a rhythm and a tempo to it that is totally disrupted by, firstly, the DJ and the music, but the way in which it was delivered as well. With, with the DJ plays the first minute of his of his set, let's say. And then uh, builds up all the way up for what would typically be expected to be the drop, the moment when the music reaches a crescendo and then drops back into a pounding rhythm and then the crowd go wild is the idea. But they then call on Max Verstappen to come back onto the podium to deliver the drop by awkwardly pressing a button that probably doesn't even do that because I think Armin van Buren also like clicked <laughs> another switch over there. Uh, I, you know, I thought we said that we hope yeah. they learned their lesson after last year and in fairness to Liberty Media they binned the Bruce Buffer intros of the US Grand Prix <laughs> if you can recall that <laughs> <laughs> yeah they quite wisely got rid of that um, so look they're a work in progress but as ever John I would say I am encouraged by the determination of the group to keep on trying to add value to the sport in these kind of ways and I'd far rather see mistakes being made than uh, do you know what you're dead right for far too long it was just Bernie deciding what he thought was the right thing to do and all too often that was the thing that he had done for a long long time so I am really grateful to see them really put in the effort and and do their best to mix it up and attract new audiences and try try to even like in reference to the the US intros that they did the Bruce Buffer intros at least they're trying to like tailor it to the audience and trying to encourage the local support in whatever medium that might be just in this particular note and on the Bruce Buffer intros the, this DJ after after the race just feels so jarring feels so out of place feels so forced and you're, you're right in saying the the weird minute lapse in between the build up to the drop and then having Max Verstappen come back out that was so unsmoothly done it was so so rough around the edges it was it felt like it wasn't even pre-planned it was just like oh I think I'll I'll throw this in here great to see them try it did not work yeah so do get get in touch with us regarding your thoughts on on the DJ we are the Driving Line F1 podcast on Facebook and Instagram we're at the Driving Line on Twitter and you can email us at motormediaireland at gmail.com if you could rate, review and comment on the podcast in your podcast feeds, it will indeed help us get out to more people, which we would always appreciate. So if you do enjoy the show, that is the way to help us out in that respect. We are completely commercial free. Uh, we have no intention of making money off this thing at the moment. We are just buoyed by the fact that uh, we, we get the engagement and we have people listening to it and we thoroughly enjoy making it. And that is the way to help us get out to more people, as I said. However, that is all we have time for for this particular episode of The Driving Line F1 podcast uh, that's all we have time for as I said so for myself David Hollywood and for me John Daly it was a bit of a nightmare for Mercedes despite the fact that Lewis Hamilton claimed his fifth world title it was steady from Sebastian Vettel but the story really was the redemption of Renault for Red Bull specifically Max Verstappen a race winner congratulations we do hope you enjoyed the show and we will have our preview of the Brazilian Grand Prix coming out shortly. So stay tuned to your podcast feeds for that. Thanks for joining us and take care. Oh, God! Michael Schumacher hits David Coulthard and is out of the Belgian... Fernando is faster than you. His engine has 
has blown and his chances of winning the Malaysia Grand Prix with it. Goodness, he's furious. And take back. Oh my goodness.